Hello, friends. Welcome. So excited that you're here. Today we are talking with somebody who is one of the world's experts on the Romanoff family. People are enduringly fascinated by the last royal family of Russia. Talking about Tsar Nicholas II, his wife Alexandra, the mythology of Anastasia, and of course they're related to all kinds of other European royalty. Their murder has been the stuff of a legend. So let's dive into my conversation with author and historian Helen Rappaport. I'm Sharon McMahon, and here's where it gets interesting. I am really excited to be chatting with you because I have been fascinated by Russian history for most of my adolescence and adult life. I'm sure you hear that from people all the time, and I bet you share the same fascination. Otherwise, you would not have made such an extensive career of writing about the Romanov family. Yes, I, I was caught up with Russia and the Russian language and the literature and the music at that very kind of mid-teen period when mm-hmm. one is very impressionable and hungry for knowledge and discovery. And really, I fell in love with the Russians when I was about 15. That was long before I discovered the Romanovs, I have to say, because my initial passion was for Anton Chekhov, the short story writer. Mm. And when I watched that all those old Russian films they used to show on the TV, TV. And I then studied Russian. I was very lucky because I went to a girls' grammar school in England where I had the chance to learn Russian. And then I went on to do Russian at university. But I came to the Romanos very late in my life as such. Did you? What about them is so fascinating to you and to audiences? Because there is undoubtedly an enduring fascination with them. What about it is so interesting? Well, it's funny to say that. I think as a historian, I actually avoided them because mm. I felt that there was too much bling and chintz and sentiment and the whole story had become inflated with a lot of mm-hmm. mythology. You know, it had been mm-hmm. dominated for so many decades by the spurious Anastasia claim. And then there's all the endless uh, demonization of Rasputin and all the the nonsense written about him. And I felt that the subject had been infected with a lot of mythology and misinformation. And quite honestly, I didn't want to go near it. So when I first started writing, I hadn't thought particularly of doing the Romanos. And it came from an agent I was with at the time, a literary agent. And I'd just done a book on women in the Crimean War. And we were sitting in his office sort of mulling over what I should write next. And he said, well, look, why don't you do the Romanovs? You're a Russianist. You're a Russian speaker. And I went, and I can remember my reaction. It was, oh, no, all those palaces and bling, (laughs) sentimental Mm -hmm. stuff and Anastasia. And I really didn't fancy it. Mm -hmm. I really was kind of put off by all the, the schmaltz associated with the story. But he was insistent. He said, look, go away and take a look at them. And I said, well, oh, I don't want to do a big biography of, say, Nicholas or Alexander. I wasn't interested in that because as a historian, what really fascinates me are aspects of the story that are less well known, you know, Mm -hmm. going into the footnotes, looking behind the scenes. So he gave me the key and I shall always be grateful to this agent. He said to me, think of a timeline. 
You don't have to do a whole life. And this is a principle I, I've kept to with many other books. So go away and look at a part of the story. So what I did, in fact, was looked at the last two weeks of their lives mm. in the build-up to their horrific murders at the Apartheid House in Yekaterinburg. And I suddenly realised very, very quickly, and maybe it comes from having once been an actress a long, long time ago, but when I looked at the last two weeks of their lives, I could see a scenario. I could see a story developing and how you could build the tension of these people trapped in this awful house, unable to get away. Everyone wants to kill them. Other people want to rescue them. And in the end, I wrote uh, Last Days of the Romanos, as it was known in America, about the last two weeks of their lives, it building up to that horrible murder. And after I'd done that, I thought, well, that's fine. I've written a story. I've satisfied myself that I'd given the Romanovs a go. And something kept niggling at me. I kept thinking about those four girls mm. and how really when you look at any book written about the Romanovs, they're always the set dressing. They're always in the background, the pretty girls in white frocks who all look interchangeable and rather demure and sweet and as though there was nothing going on between their ears, you know. And I thought there's got to be more. Mm -hmm. And so I decided to re research the story of the four sisters, mm. how little known they were and what a wonderful support they were to the family and how in many ways without them, their mother and father would not have been able to keep going in captivity. Mm. And so what, what began as one book that I thought I'd be done with in 2007 when I wrote it, carried on and carried on and carried on. Mm -hmm. And I'm still at the tail end of Rome, and I'll see even now on my 17th book <laughs> for my sins. And I wasn't <laughs> expecting to go back to them, but I say that every time, and I do. But I really, this really has got to be the last but This one. is it. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. 
I know there's somebody listening to this who was like, who, what now? What are we talking about? Who were they? (laughs) Okay. So let's, first of all, just set the stage very simply. Who exactly are the Romanovs and why were they murdered? Well, the Romanov family were czars of Russia. They were the ruling house of Russia and had been since the, the early 17th century. In 1913, they celebrated their tercentenary and they had been on the throne of Russia at the time a revolution broke out in 1917. And so my interest has always been in the last imperial family of Russia who were all murdered in July 1918 in Siberia. It was a very turbulent story because the reason so many people take an interest in the last imperial family of Russia is because so much of their story revolves around the tragedy of the only son and heir who was born to the family in 1904, turning out to be a haemophiliac with very short life expectancy. And the trauma that his mother, Alexandra, the Tsaritsa, had gone through between her marriage in 1894 and producing Alexei uh, in, in 1904, the trauma she had gone through trying to produce a son and heir because it had to go by the male line in Russia. Mm-hmm. And in order to get to Alexei, she produced four daughters in a row. And the enormous pressures on her caused a lot of controversy and drama in Russia because without a son and heir, the throne would have passed sideways to Mm. one of the other grand dukes. Okay, so this is the last sort of royal ruling family Family. of Russia. People have probably heard of, you know, Tsar Nicholas II. They probably heard of Nicholas and Alexandra. And they have probably heard of the mythology, the legend, the lore surrounding their daughter, Anastasia. There's even been like animated movies made about it. Oh, don't talk to me about that. That's <laughs> There's been, I have to say, I do get a bit hot under the collar when people go on at me, but not you, but when people generally get all aerated about Anastasia, because the woman who claimed to be Anastasia was a total fraud. The mm. whole story got ridiculously inflated thanks to that Hollywood film with Ingrid mm-hmm. Bergman. And unfortunately, it dragged on and on and on Mm -hmm. for decades because Anna Anderson, the claimant who ended up in America, she dragged through the German law courts pursuing her claim for decades, trying to prove she was Anastasia and ultimately failing. But all the time this claim was going on, there were those who wanted to believe it because Mm -hmm. no one wanted to believe that the Bolsheviks would have been the Russians, you know, the new Russian government led by Lenin, would have been so cruel as to murder all those children, all five children, that somehow if one of them had got away, there would be some comfort in that Mm -hmm, if one of them mm -hmm. had survived. Here's another thing that a lot of people don't realize if they're new to studying this time period in this geographical region in history is they perhaps don't understand how related many of the rulers of Europe were, how related they were to each other. Let me just think my way through this, because it's very easy to confuse them all. 
Nicholas II's mother, Maria Fyodorovna, that was her Russian name, but she was Princess Dagmar of Denmark. So Mm -hmm. she was Danish. Her sister, Alexandra, was the wife of Bertie, the heir to Queen Victoria, who was the mother of the next king. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the relationships are very, very close. The Russian royals were sort of effectively cousins or fairly close cousins. Nicholas spoke perfect English when he was courting Alexandra and then they married. And, you know, in that period, just before their marriage, he came to Windsor. He met Granny, Queen Victoria, and charmed the pants off her. He spoke impeccable English. He had English manners. He was an Anglophile. So in many ways... King George V, who succeeded his father in 1910, had very, very close relationship with Nicholas and Alexandra because Alexandra was his cousin as well. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's all this intertwining. And one of Alexandra's sisters, because they were from Germany, also married one of the Russian Grand Dukes. Okay. I have a lot of questions that were sent in by people who are in my community. They have things they want to know. This is a big one. I got asked a lot about why couldn't they have been rescued? And I know you've written a whole book on this, The Race to Save the Romanovs. Could the king have done more? Walk us through exactly what was undertaken to rescue them and why it was unsuccessful. Because once the Bolsheviks seized power during the Russian Revolution, they were intent on sort of purging Russia from this idea of like a a royal family. Uh, And they were imprisoned in a house in Siberia, as you mentioned. And so there was this like time period during their imprisonment where people persist in believing that they could have and should have been rescued by somebody. Well, this is a very, very big question. You'll appreciate I could spend two hours. You could write a whole book on it. I I basically will (laughs) beg your listeners (laughs) to please read my book, but I will try my very best to simplify it. If I have to give you one word answer why they couldn't get them out, it's simple. Geography. People have no conception of the difficulty of distance, thousands of miles from Western Europe. They're in the middle of nowhere. You haven't got aeroplanes that could fly in and out that kind Mm -hmm. of distance. In order to mount a rescue, you would need an enormously sophisticated and well-planned operation. And the other thing people must remember, Alexandra Nicholas had many royal relatives in Europe. You know, there was a degree of collective responsibility to help them, but everyone passed the buck. Mm-hmm. It was too much of a hot potato. And then you get the uh, this additional ramification of, well, if we take them in, who's going to pay for them? Who's going to support them? Where are they going to live? Are they going to be a drain on our finances? Are they going to be a security risk? Because... Mm-hmm. I promise you, if Nicholas and Alexander had come here, people would have been trying to pop a shot at them. So the government, various governments of Europe behind the scenes were all saying the same thing. It's too much of a liability to take them in. So what you've got to understand with the failures to get them out is a combination of many 
many factors and not just simply King George saying, oh, I've changed my mind. Mm. That wouldn't have made any difference one way or the other. King George could have been jumping up and down, sitting on a, in a, in a boat in northern Russia saying, come on, come and get on the boat. If they couldn't have got them on a train out of Petrograd or mm-hmm. got them out of Siberia, any attempt at rescue would have been futile. It was thousands of miles north to get them onto a boat. Mm. I think people underestimate the sheer geographical complexity. Siberia is so vast. Yeah. And the, the weather, <laughs> the weather is so bad. The other thing, too, is that when people say, well, they should have flown in a plane, there was no such thing as an enclosed cockpit. They weren't passenger planes and they were not enclosed cockpits. So you could not safely even fly at all. No, it would have been impossible to fly all the way to Satoborsk. It was bonkers. It's absolutely bonkers. There's no possible way to fly them out. That that the technology did not exist. No, it didn't. It didn't. We hear from a lot of interesting people on this podcast, and I know that I am always hungry for more. And what if you could learn from the world's best all in one place? Guess what? You can. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best. Masterclass is the only streaming platform where you can learn and grow with over 200 of the world's best instructors. For just $10 a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to every instructor. And you can access Masterclass on your phone, your computer, your smart TV, even in audio modes, you can listen to it like a podcast. I know that when I watch Doris Kearns Goodwin, that first of all, I'm going to be getting fantastic information, that the production level is going to be incredible. And then I'm going to walk away feeling smarter and more informed than I was before. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Sharon. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Sharon. Masterclass.com slash Sharon. The show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all have stress in our life. Absolutely. It's unavoidable. It's just part of the human experience. But some of us have more than others, and some of us handle it better than others. Some of us really keep it bottled up and it can start to affect us negatively. I would imagine at some point in your life, you can relate to this, right? And therapy is a safe space to be able to get some of these things off your chest. And that is why so many people find benefit in speaking to a qualified professional. If you're thinking about starting therapy for something like managing your stress, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Sharon today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Sharon. We have all had embarrassing moments where something didn't smell quite right. 
And if you have any children or people in your lives who have stinky toes, stinky feet, and those stinky shoes pile up by the door of your house. And then when people come over, they're like, um, your house smells weird. There's a solution for that. And it is not necessarily spraying down your house with disinfectant. It is taking care of the smell at the source by using Lumi on places like the people in your house's stinky feet. It is a whole body deodorant. It is safe to use anywhere on your body. It was created by a doctor who saw firsthand how stinky feet and other body parts are often misdiagnosed as problems when in reality you could just use a product like Lumi and it would take care of the issue. It has been clinically proven to block odor all day and control odor for up to 72 hours. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, a cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, New customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code SHARON at LumiDeodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit LumiDeodorant.com and use code SHARON. Here's another question that a lot of people are curious about. I bet you get asked about this all of the time. People want to know about Rasputin. They want to know about his relationship with the Tsarina. They want to know about his influence on the Russian royal family. First of all, who was he? I'm going to start by saying what he wasn't. He was not a mad monk. (laughs) as he is so often labeled he was neither mad nor a monk he was a kind of itinerant holy man come preacher come healer of the kind that's unique to russia uh you can't really find an equivalent a sort of wise man guru who traveled russia and when he came to petersburg he set himself up and gathered round him a group of followers, mainly women, because he had this talent, some kind of talent for auto-suggestive talents, for calming, healing. I won't say he was a miracle worker because he wasn't, but people thought he was. The problem with Rasputin is in a way similar to Anastasia, in that Layers and layers of hype, misinformation, gossip, utter silliness, Hollywoodization, you name it, have totally warped the story and misrepresented him. Mm. He was an extraordinary, powerful presence whom the Romanovs, Nicholas and Alexandra, gravitated to because of Alexei's attacks of haemophilia and uncontrollable bleeding. He had some kind of auto-suggestive power. Now, anyone who lives in America might know about horse whispering, Mm -hmm. where he was like a a human whisperer. That's Mm -hmm. the best equivalent I can find. He had an ability to calm and reassure And by calming the mother, who got very hysterical when Alexei had these attacks, he calmed the child. And it's actually a skill that peasants in Russia had. He'd been a horse dealer. He knew how to deal with animals. Back in Siberia, his father had dealt with horses. He'd learned this skill where they call, which they call in Russian, talking the blood. 
Mm. which is talking to an animal when it's injured itself and calming it. And he applied those kind of skills to humans. But no one's ever been able to explain Rasputin's gifts, skills, whatever you want to call them. He was not a fraud. And so he's been very demonized, unfortunately, through a lot of really bad TV and film dramas who always make him out to be this insane, crazy, satanic sexual figure. Mm. Yes, he had a bad reputation for being a bit of a drinker and a womanizer. He, you know, there was a negative side to him, certainly. But when you look into the story, he actually cared very deeply about the imperial family and especially the children. And the children liked him and they respected him because he would be like this old prophet. He would tell them Bible stories and they were quite enthralled by him. So there there are many dimensions to Rasputin. Unfortunately, they've all been ironed out and, and instead there's this superficial imposition of this satanic kind of lurid personality that isn't really the truth Mm. of him at all. Okay, here's another question people want to know, because there's a lot of rumor, conjecture, mythology surrounding the murder of the Romanovs themselves, including one that I can remember very vividly learning about as a teenager, and I would love to know if it's true or not, which is that they hid their jewels beneath their clothing and then as they were being shot the jewels caused the bullets to ricochet around this room i have to restrain myself from saying (laughs) words here (laughs) i take it that wasn't how that didn't really happen (laughs) when the romanos were taken into captivity All they had as insurance for the future, should they ever miraculously sprung from jail or be allowed to go into exile, were Alexandra's jewellery, of which she had a considerable collection. Many, many long ropes of pearls, which she particularly liked, but diamonds and you name it. So what happened in the winter of 1917, when they were in Tobolsk, which was their first Siberian place of captivity, where the regime was a lot looser and not as frightening and and oppressive. She and her daughter spent that winter, because they knew sooner or later these things would be found and taken away from them, sewing Alexandra's jewellery into the girls' camisoles. They disguised individual diamonds and bigger jewels as buttons, covered them over, put them on caps, inside cap linings, Everywhere they could think of, they dispersed Alexandra's jewellery because that was their only money. That was their Mm -hmm. only currency. Mm -hmm. So what happened when they were then moved on to Ekaterinburg and when they were taken down into the cellar that night to be murdered, there is no way that bullets bounced off the clothing they were wearing, because I had a very, very long discussion, five-hour discussion with an expert witness, ballistics, forensic ballistic expert, who explained to me what, you know, that there was no way on God's earth that bullets would have bounced off. The reason they had such a job killing them was the killers were incompetent. Some of the guns didn't work or misfired. There was mass panic in the room. People were screaming and falling over all over the place. It was mainly down to the incompetence of the killers. 
that, mm. you know, the bullets didn't hit the target. And mm. what was so interesting that uh, this forensics expert said to me, he said, you wouldn't believe how easy it is in a situation like that, where there's, remember, a room with one light bulb, loads of smoke and fumes and chaos and screaming. He said, it's unbelievably easy to miss. But the bouncing bullet myth needs to be buried. <laughs> <laughs> okay, speaking of being buried, there's you know a lot of speculation that where they were buried was an open secret that everybody knew about it or they didn't. What actually happened to their bodies after they were murdered? This, again, is a, another shining example of Bolshevik inefficiency. The commandant of the apartheid house and his henchmen had gone out into the Koptiaki forest about nine miles out of Ekaterinburg to find a suitable spot to dump the bodies. They'd wanted to find a proper mine shaft, but that was too far away. But in the end, they decided on a mine working. Now, it's very important because, again, mythology says they threw the bodies down the mine shaft. It wasn't a mine shaft. It was a fairly shallow mine working in the forest and they were all exhausted they'd been up all night they wanted to get rid of the bodies so they stripped them of their clothes and as they did so they found all the jewels sewn Mm. you know in the clothes and they threw the bodies into this fairly shallow pit at a place called four brothers and hastily poured acid over the bodies to try and destroy them. That was dreadfully inefficiently done mm-hmm. and threw earth in over them and went home. And of course, not long after they went back, the commandant Yurovsky realised that the local peasants would find that grave in five minutes. Mm-hmm. And what would happen? There would be a mass rush to get holy martyr relics from the grave of all the murdered Romanovs. So he now took his exhausted henchmen, who hadn't been to bed for more than 24 hours, back to the forest the next day, dug them all out again. They put them back in the truck and they were going to try and go to a, a proper mine shaft some miles away. I think it was a copper mine some miles further north. But halfway coming out of the Kupchaki forest, which was muddy and only a rough track, their rubbishy little citron lorry sunk into the mud and they couldn't move it. So that's when, in a panic, uh, Yurovsky said, oh, let's just dig a hole and dump them here. So they then dug a hole and dumped the bodies there. But at the time they did that, now that was Nicholas Alexandra, three of the daughters, but the two smaller children, Alexei and Maria, were taken aside and they tried to burn their bodies. So they were not thrown into that pit along with the Romanov family and their doctor and three of their very loyal servants, of course, had all been horribly murdered with them in the cellar. So this is how the myth of Anastasia starts, really, because they dumped the bodies that second night in the second grave at Parasyonkov Log, Luke, which is called Pig's Meadow. In the late 70s, a couple of local amateur archaeologists started going out to the forest searching for the second grave. And they had read and examined all the accounts by Yurovsky, who made two or three statements about some of his henchmen who later were interviewed about where they dumped them on the night of the murders. And they figured out where they thought 
the second grave was. And in secret, these two guys dug and they found that second grave. And in fact, they pulled out several of Romanov's skulls, including Nicholas's, took them home, put them under the bed. But, you know, this is the Soviet era. They could not say anything. And in the end, they kind of got a bit nervous about it, took them back and reburied them. So nothing was said or done until after the collapse of communism in 1991. The grave was opened and the bodies of the family and their servants, minus the two children, remember, who were, mm-hmm. whose bodies were taken off, were found. They were exhumed, identified. Meanwhile, this is now 1998, they still haven't found the missing two children. And because one daughter and Alexei were missing, there was this big argument that raged. Was the missing daughter Anastasia? And others said, no, it was Maria. There was still this element of doubt that made people carry on claiming, oh, no, Anastasia got away because they hadn't found the two children who were missing. And then an extraordinary thing happened. I went to Katrinburg in 2007 to research my first book about the murder of the Romanos. And just as I flew home, I got an email from a Katrinburg from one of my contacts saying they'd been digging in the forest and they think they found the two missing children. So I was mortified that I missed it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but that's when they found the two missing children and did mm. a lot more tests. And conclusively, they all died. Please, mm. let's put the lid on it. Listen, I know if you pick up any kind of beauty magazine or you follow an influencer, there's like a new skincare product every single day of the week, and it can be really difficult to know which ones to even try, like which one is worth your money. And if you're tired of cycling through ineffective skincare trends and overcomplicated routines, you might be excited to know that one of today's sponsors is OneSkin. Their products make it easy to keep your skin healthy. No complicated routines, just simple, scientifically validated solutions. The secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS1 peptide. It's the first ingredient proven to switch off the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. I especially like the eye cream. It's not too thick where you feel like it's going to clog all your pores, but it goes on really, really nicely under makeup. For a limited time, you'll get an exclusive 15% off your first OneSkin purchase using the code SHARON when you check out at oneskin.co. That's O-N-E-S-K-I-N dot C-O. Try OneSkin and enjoy younger, healthier skin without all the extra steps. That's oneskin.co, code SHARON. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. One of the things I wanted to ask you about is about the sort of this canonization of the Romanov family. I want to say it was 2000 or thereabouts. It was about then. They yeah. were canonized as holy Russian passion bearers, as Orthodox saints in the calendar, mm-hmm. as was the Tsaritsa's murdered sister, Ella, who she, with some of the Grand Dukes and a couple of a prince, were murdered not far away the night after the Romanovs were killed. Yes, they are saints in the Orthodox calendar. And the extraordinary thing is the absolute explosion of resurgence of orthodoxy after the collapse of communism. And the thing I noticed very profoundly when I went to Russia to research that book on the murders was you could everywhere you went in Russia, every church had enormous icons of the imperial family. They have in a way been at the center of this massive resurgence of Orthodox faith. And of course, in Ekaterinburg, every July on the anniversary of the murders, there are the the Sarsky Dni, the, the Tsar's days, when pilgrims come from all over Russia to commemorate that. And on the hundredth anniversary in 2018, it was an enormous influx. I don't know, about 20,000 people in Katrinburg for that, for that all-night vigil. And I've stood there. I've mm. stood there during the all-night vigil in July of that very, very long church service. And it's incredibly moving. Mm. Okay, last question, which is, if you could share one interesting fact or dispel one persistent myth you wish everyone knew about the Romanov family, what would that be? Well, I think it's a very simple thing, actually. When it actually comes down to it, they were a very ordinary, loving family who were very devoted to each other, who Mm. were devoutly religious, and whose religious faith in many ways kept them going through captivity. And when you look at their private lives as a domestic unit, they couldn't look less like a blingtastic royal family. Mm. You know, they, they were very unpretentious as a royal family. Mm. They really were. Fascinating. Yeah, that's not the impression you get as a Western observer at all. No. And when yeah. you look at the girls during the war, during the war, it was very interesting. Alexandra says, well, first of all, they trained as nurses and did voluntary work in the hospitals. But Alexandra said to her daughters, no new clothes. We will patch and mend. We will not have luxuries. We will try and 
put up with things as the rest of the population is. Mm. And you look at the photographs of the girls during the war years, and they're in just ordinary blouses and cardigans and bubble hats, and they dressed incredibly modestly, wore very little jewellery. Helen, thank you for being here today. This was incredibly interesting. And I know that people who find this topic fascinating are going to find a treasure trove of information <laughs> in your books. I mean, we have not even scratched one one tenth of one percent of the surface of the research you have conducted and the stories you have written about the Russian royal family. So thank you for being here. Well, thank you. I just hope people can just find the time to try and get to the real story and mm. forget about the Disneyfication of it all. <laughs> mm-hmm. Agreed. Oh my goodness. Helen is a prolific researcher and writer. Her books are truly fascinating. The Race to Save the Romanovs goes deeply into what it was like to try to get the Romanovs out of their imprisonment before they were murdered, and also the book The Romanov Sisters. I found very fascinating. This is scholarship that almost nobody else is engaged in. What were the family members themselves like? So check out Helen Rappaport's books if you want to know more. I'll see you again soon. Thank you for listening to Hearer's Work. It's interesting. This show is written and researched by Heather Jackson, Sharon McMahon, Valerie Hoback, and Amy Watkin. Edited and mixed by our audio producer, Jenny Snyder, and is hosted by me, Sharon McMahon. We'll see you again soon.